Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, brought to you from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Jules Holland's Hootenanny is a festive institution here in the UK, and as this is the final episode of the year before Christmas and New Year's Eve, I wanted to share Jules's appearance on the How To Academy stage. He joined us in conversation with Mark Cooper, the co-creator of Later and the author of a new book, documenting their 30 years of creating music and mayhem together at the BBC. Speaking of Christmas, if you're looking for last-minute gifts for the thoughtful person in your life, consider a digital membership to HowTo Plus, our subscription service. It includes free access to all live stream events, past, present and future, half-price tickets to our on-stage programme, and an exclusive podcast that covers the entire programme. Find out more at howtoacademy.com. That's enough from me. Here are Jules and Mark. Thank you so much for this very generous welcome. Thank you to my um, co my co I'll call him this evening, <laughs> Mr. Mark. Let's have a round of applause for Mark. That's a warm up. Don't do piano there. I mean, this is really partly. A, it's really partly a celebration of this... It looks like a nice advert, doesn't it? Partly a celebration of this book that Mark has written about 30 years of our television programme, which we've been making, the, the later with Jules Holland, and the Hootenanny. And so we will be discussing that, and then you might hear, if you, if you manage to stay awake... Is that somebody putting their hands up? No questions yet. <laughs> but if you manage to stay awake and have thought of anything that you want to ask us... The sort of last half of it will be questions. So if you've got any questions you want to ask us, then you can at the end, um, based on the things you sort of hear. So we're going to sort of talk through some of the things in the book. I'm going to play a couple of sort of illustrations of what it was like to work with some of the people. And um, I think we might start at the very beginning. And um, first of all, has anybody ever been to the show before? Anybody been, been, to, been to our television programme? One person. No, two people. Three. Okay, a handful of people. Has anybody not ever been to the show? Okay. Has anybody ever seen the show? Anybody not seen the show? The same people just shouting out yes to everything. My sort of a crowd. Excellent. Well, I'm very pleased you're here. And um, nice chat show chairs here. For what it's worth, the noted Conway Hall is, of course, where they have the London piano auctions, um, which have now just moved to Bedford. But they do have them here all the time. So it's got a nice vibration in this room. Anyway, let's get to the start. So I'm going to ask Mark, really, where the programme begins for him, which is some 30 years ago. Mark, where does it all start for you? So I was working for the BBC on a show called The Late Show, which um, was on four nights a week on BBC Two. And we, I used to book all the bands, which they weren't just bands. It was string quartets, jazz trios, folk artists, hot bands of the moment. And I did this for a couple of years, working with the director, Janet Fraser-Crook. And Janet kept saying, we have to do our own music show. And I was quite nervous, because at that point, Jules had done The Tube, which finished in, what, 86, 87, something like that. The Old Grey Whistle Test had finished. Channel 4 kept launching music shows that would last one series and end. And it just seemed a a road rather inclined to failure. But Janet was very persistent. And she said, I have a great way of filming this. And I went and talked to the guy who was the editor of the, The Late Show, Michael Jackson. And he said, you need to go and meet Jules Holland. And so I did. I came 
south of the river to see Jules in his his um, studio, his fortress, exactly, in Helican Mountain. And I had seen Jules play many times before. The first time I saw Jules, I was living in America, and Squeeze were on tour. It was 1978, and their debut album had come out in America under the name UK Squeeze, because there were rivals in America who claimed to have bagged the name. And Jules was dressed in a, in a, a bow tie that seemed to... I seem to remember I had a battery that blinked on and off. I don't know if this is correct. So I was always the attention seeker of the group. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, I should just say that um, that particular album, I was all the band, because it was the days of punk, were photographed on the cover uh, in their underpants. That was the sort of period it was. So that was our first... That was, that was a general... Uh, and the, the, the songs were a little naughty, a little wicked in that time. And um, we were on stage... I went to see them at the old Waldorf in San Francisco. And halfway through the show, Jules was played Do the Mess Around, I think, by Ray Charles at the piano in his spot. And Jules was very much the MC. But suddenly, they did a song called Strong in Reason. And out from the side of the stage... And I, I, I wish this was happening tonight, really. Outburst a man dressed only in speedos. A muscle man. A muscle man. In accordance with, I think, the theme of the promotion of the album, who proceeded to yes. do that. Yeah, I should just say, I mean, this is diverting. We'll get back to the programme in a minute. But when Squeeze first, we, did, we tried it in London, because we were all muscle men on the front, and there was a huge muscle man on the front of the record, and we were all in our pants on the back sort of thing. A lot of weedy sort of southeast London <laughs> youths. But we got on this muscle man in the days of punk, and it was somewhere around here, there was a gym where all these sort of um, muscle men were. And it was vaguely sort of underworldly as well. But they came on, and he came on to a show we did in London with his flexing his muscles, but it was the middle of the punk thing. So he sort of came off drenched in gob and completely mystified, had no understanding of what that was about. Anyway, that was the days of punk. So that was our first... That was the first time we saw Jules, but then I went down to see him in 1992 and we talked about what kind of a music show we imagined, and we imagined that it would have lots of different kinds of music, that it would be in one room, and we'd try and pile as much room into the, the room as possible, much music, and that it would have a home, and the home would be the piano. So it's almost... The, the, the other main host of the programme is the piano. It's the, it's the other guest, which will come on to in a moment. I should just also explain, because there's probably quite a few of you will be just going back... Wait a minute. Did Mark say that Michael Jackson told him <laughs> to go and see Jules? Were they all friends? Was, did this happen in Neverland? What was all this about? <laughs> I should explain that Michael Jackson he's talking about is a different Michael Jackson. Very... <laughs> A great fellow, and he had been Jeremy Isaac's right-hand man at Channel 4 when I'd been at Channel 4, and then became, I think he was the head of the BBC Two or something, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. And he took me out for dinner, and I said, shall I book the table or will you? He said, I will. And I went to this restaurant, and I'd been given the very best table, and you could feel with the waiters there was a great tension in the air that immediately turned to great disappointment when <laughs> our Michael Jackson came in. <laughs> great fellow he is. Anyway. Yes. So that was the plan, that we'd have this room. And at that time, the Late Show was mostly consisted of short films. So we borrowed the studio in the day. We had to finish by 10 o'clock at night. We loaded it with equipment. Tracy McLeod, who presented the Late Show on our very first show, would come out and 
say, Jules, we're going to give you the studio. When we booked, who was it? The Neville Brothers, the Christians, yeah. uh, New Colours, yes. a whole group of music. And to be honest, we didn't completely know what we was doing. We had as much music in as possible. But one thing we did do that seemed the only way to start this show, but was intrinsic to the way we thought about it, we did something called The Groove. And The Groove just meant that all the bands sat in a chord, vamp together on a chord that Jules would throw in at first and say, what about... Usually at the very last moment you'd say, what about the key of C or something like that? Yeah, could somebody start something? And if you were lucky, somebody would start and then they'd join in or, or not. Um, it should be said as well, we did sort of start with nothing because so this, when we first did the shows, there was no set, minimal cameras, and also no audience. So when the bands, you know, and it, so it evolved. When the bands finished a fantastic song, there would be just sort of me and the cameraman going... <laughs> so after doing it for a little bit, we, we, we realised that we needed to add things. Also, my experience had been on the tube, which, curiously enough, came on the air for the first time on the 5th of November, which is 1982, so that's 40 years ago almost to the day, when Channel 4 started. And in fact, Channel 4 are making absolutely nothing whatsoever of that, whatsoever <laughs> of that unlike this lovely book. But... The whole point of the tube, it had become so sort of big and, and trying to do too much and was trying to be, it, it started off being chaotic because it just really was like that. Then it was trying to look for ways of being provocative or chaotic, which you can never do. So I think I was quite keen when working with Mark, was just, just stick with the music, not do anything, and just let it evolve, let the music speak for itself. And I think one of the reasons that the music, has stayed, or the show has stayed on for 30 years is because of the way Mark produced it. It is because I've been the glue, but most of all, it's because we've been the servants of the song and the music is the thing that's come first. And that's what's kept the show on. And it's not what you see generally on television programmes because when music is on television programmes, they are either subservient to something in a chat show or a competition or something like that or trying to have people burst into tears or whatever it is. There was a bit of bursting into tears backstage at our show, but we don't show that bit. So it's, that's, I think that was the key to taking the music seriously and giving it the centre stage. And also, Mark and I realised as it went on that we, well, it was important um, for anybody who's seen the show, but it might not be obvious when you're looking at it, to have a mix of all sorts of music. As Mark said once, you know, you want a, it's got to be a home as well for great stars of today and huge pop stars and things like this, but also and all great legends of the past and new artists, but also a home for the sort of music that doesn't have a home anywhere else on television, for people in the world of folk music or jazz music or whatever it is, different genres of music. And ideally, on each show, you'd have all of those things mixed together so you would learn something new. The opposite of the way that the algorithm works. In other words, if you like that, you're going to like more of this. If you like that, here's something completely different. You might like that too. So that's sort of where we were coming from. Yeah, I think at first, in the first few shows, I tried to theme them, and I thought, oh, it'd be nice to book things that had a vague country feel. I know we had a show with Katie Lang on it, or a soul feel. And actually, then I quickly realised that was really constricting. And what was fun was that the more divergence in the music, then everything bounced off each other, and 
part of the joy of the music was therefore you could throw up surprises. And when I was doing the interviews for the book, I interviewed quite a few artists, and, and one of them, Alicia Keys, who we both loved, didn't we? And were the, from the first, who the first time she came on the show, she'd been touring around Europe where she'd only been able to perform to track, and she couldn't believe she'd come to this room full of music. But she also couldn't believe how divergent the music was. I think the first time she was on, there was a chorus player from Africa, and the second time, uh, a choir from a Creole choir from Cuba. And she kept saying to me, "This this room's full of music. Who are these people? What is this?" <laughs> because. She just kept, felt she was discovering music, and that's, I guess, what we always wanted to do with the viewer, is, is in a way share great music and surprise you, surprise ourselves. Uh, and all but through that, and some of the people in the different, you know, for instance, early on we had the Buena Vista Social Club. Now, there wasn't any other TV show they could go on, really. Um, but of course they were fantastic. But in, a, in, a, in an age which is, you know, people always want, oh, can we get some new, great new excitement? Well, they were all sort of ancient, but fantastic. There is quite a good point, which I should say. When the Buena Vista Social Club, is everybody familiar with them, the, the Cuban group? They were absolutely, like, magical. And in fact, Ruben Gonzalez, the pianist, he showed me a couple of things which I still weave to this day. I, I learned things from him, which was uh, some, some, some great things from him. And in fact, I did film him once. We filmed him in the square in Havana, and the piano was so we'd been scammed. Somebody said, we'll get a, square, a piano for him, and we gave him some money, and it was like, it was the worst piano. Like, there was strings coming out of it, broken bits, <laughs> and he couldn't speak very good English. And he started playing it, and I said to the translator, I said, tell him, I'm really sorry, what, what can we do? I don't know what we can possibly do. And then he said something in Spanish, very gently like this, and the translator said, oh, he said, he quite understands. You, you're in an awkward position. This is the only piano available. It is complete shit, but he'll play it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> good, good man. Anyway, when the Buena Vista Social Club were on, they were gathered around the piano, and when we first started, the, it was still the BBC, the building of the BBC, the dressing rooms, was still like a cross between 1950s showbiz and a sort of a KGB interrogation area. <laughs> Lovely sort of mix of 1960s sort of stuff. And as you walked along the corridor, sort of, you know, the Robin Day would walk past or whatever, all these sort of, you know, people who, or, or, or drama, you know, dramas were being shot. Poldark. Poldark. But, but not, the, not the more recent version. No, exactly. <laughs> anyway. But, so that element was still there. So the Bunavista Social Club are playing, and then they, and halfway through the, their song, I think Janet, the director, said, can you, they're, they're very, being very still to the floor manager, who was, an, uh, who was a lovely man called Barry, but he was an old showbiz. He'd worked with Morgan and Wise a lot. So he got in front of the Bonavista Social Club, and I could just see them looking mystified, and he was looking at them by the side of the camera, going to them go like this. <laughs> and Ruben Gonzalez, one of the greatest pianists in the world, is just looking at him. <laughs> but that really was the magic of it because what Mark had booked into the studio, into the same studio where they'd made I, Claudius, the same <laughs> studio where they, John Cleese and Monty Python made their films, the same studio where all these Dixon and Doc Green, you name it, had all been made. Suddenly this different vibration was going in there that was international. It's the other thing. It was we were bringing music in from around the world, not just 
we had some fantastic music from America, of course we did, but there was also music coming from Europe, from uh, America, uh, from, from, from uh, South America and from Africa, all these different places around the world. So it, was a, it brought a different vibration to um, the BBC, really, which was great fun. It was, and, and, and the first time the Buena Vista Social Club, the only time they came on, Ry Kuda was with them, who... Uh, had a cold and he was a bit grumpy and but very proud of this album he made which wasn't out yet didn't come out for four or five months later and the very first time there was Compai Segundo and Ibrahim Ferrer Compai was well into his 80s and I think Compai was in his uh, late 70s Ibrahim rather was in his late 70s and they gathered round the piano Ruben was at the piano and they began to run Chan Chan, which they'd never played in this particular configuration before. They'd come to the UK to set up the record. And they started playing Chan Chan. And then after about eight minutes, which is a very long time in television, where things tend to be nearer three and a half to four minutes, Janet, the director, said to Jerry, did you say you wanted to go on holiday this year? <laughs> and I think after 10 minutes, Barry, the lovely floor manager stood up them and actually, far from doing this, kind of made the <laughs> gesture. And uh, we, we had to get around and say that time operated rather differently in television, clearly, than it did in UK television, than it clearly did in Cuba. <laughs> and then later on in the show, they were magical, and many of them would come back over the years. Ibrahim came back, etc. But uh, yeah, that was a huge part of the show, that we would bring in flavours that you just wouldn't hear. I remember also the great Portuguese singer, the Maritza. Maritza, but also we were not, you know, that we would try to, it was also, we have only, we would do 12 shows a year, generally, sometimes a little more, but generally it would be 12, six in the winter and, and another six in the spring sort of thing. And or six in the autumn and six in the spring. So there was so much music, it was very hard. There was lots of music which we couldn't get on because there just wasn't the time. And also we didn't sit at a table and think, hmm, who should we just get on? It was also dictated by who was, who's coming through, who's got a record out and who's actually sort of in the country. We didn't have a budget to fly people in or anything like that especially. So that's what dictated it. But we were very lucky in getting some great people and we had, who's the great jazz pianist we had that was... Um, McCoy Tyner? McCoy Tyner. We had McCoy Tyner. In fact, there's a couple of piano stories. One is relates to him, and that'll get me over to the piano. And McCoy Tyner came on, and he was just fantastic. And we would, Mark never said to the people, like you do on a, when, if somebody's on at the end of a chat show, they say, right, you can do, you hit the end of the chat show, you've got two minutes and you get off. <laughs> you know, so we, we were never like, and we'll run titles over you as got, well. You've got to do whatever you want and do it properly. You know, we're there to serve, we're, we're the servants of the song, we're not there to sort of impose it. So anyway, McCoy Tyner says, yeah, so he plays it through, this piece is three, three and a half minutes long. Great, lovely, okay. And it was the penultimate song, and at the end of the show... This is the live show, I should add, isn't it? Particularly, so, only half an hour. So who was on at the end of that live show? Elba. Elba. So Elba at the end of the live show, they're, they're waiting. So when McCoy Tyner finishes song, his, his song, I'm then I say, thanks, everybody, and here, see you next week, here's Elba. And, of course, if he goes over, it means there's not enough time for Elba to do their number. You just don't do it. You know. Anyway, he got to about... Three and a half, we got to sort of three minutes and 15 seconds. So I sort of move in to say thank you to the great McCoy. Anyway, and then he just starts going into another chorus. <laughs> so, so then somebody says, I never wore an earpiece. A floor manager saying, they're saying, can you stop him? 
said, well, how, that's really going to look bad. Jules barges in and, get off, stop. You can't do that to a jazz giant. You can't do it to anybody, let alone a jazz giant. So I thought, well, I'll try and sort of maybe get his eye line. But he being, he was really sort of, you know. So I thought, and McCoy China pounded the yeah, piano, so didn't he? I, I thought, unless I sort of climb across the piano, and, and that's not going to work, that's going to be even more attention-seeking. So I thought, what do I do? So I managed to get the attention of the drummer. He had a young drummer with him. And I sort of, I managed to, he realised what was going on. I said, you know, the time and the other band have got to start. So he did, and he did a thing to sort of bring the song to the end, the piece of music to the end. And then, and so it sounded like it was ending. So the crowd started giving a big round of applause. Um, at which point, McCoy then thought it was a signal that they really loved him. So started another chorus. Yeah, let's really hit it now. It's a and so now, by this time, though, the bass player, as well as the drummer, have realised what's going on, and they just ended. And I say, thank you, I said, I didn't say, I screamed, thank you, the wonderful <laughs> And he's looking a bit startled. We, and I, we're, we only have two minutes left, and we've got... And then he realised, of course, what I had to do, and then elbows started, and it was all, it was all fine. Hello, it's Vass here. One of our all-time favourite guests at How To Academy is back. Yuval Noah Harari's next book tells the story of how information networks have made and unmade our world. Nexus, a brief history of information networks from the Stone Age to AI, is out in September and available to pre-order now. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That this is where the difference between the presenter and the producer come in, because there's Jules running the floor. Yes, a bit nervous about asking the great McCoy Tyne, who played with John Coltrane, to be quiet, but up in the gallery, there is complete panic. People are phoning presentations, saying, can we, can we bite into Newsnight? Can we go on? Janet's going, for God's sake, get them to start applauding now. Because in a way, the worst thing to be in television is powerless. And faced with the, the torrent of McCoy Tyner's music, we are completely powerless and think, completely dependent on Jules to do the thing he would hate most in the world. To wrestle great jazz artists to the ground. <laughs> anyway, I'll talk, and I'm going to talk now just for a moment, if I may, about the piano and its, and its, and its part role. In, it, in its role. Because really, in fact, I should have, in, in, when I was on stage, I should have introduced it as the, as, the, as the person who I've been having a relationship with a very long time for, <laughs> and is with me all the time, and sometimes things go great and sometimes they don't. But they're there. But not only is the piano on the floor, and as Mark said, it became the centre where you'd have piano side chats instead of fireside chats. It's like the home and the centre of the show. But also, there's an upright piano in my little dressing room, and particularly the ones in the BBC Television Centre, and they really were like sort of little KGB compromat rooms, um, where you'd go and there was a little bath in there and sort of 
a couple of 1960s wooden chairs, and, and the piano. And the piano is what made it friendly, because when people saw the piano in the room, all the artists, it's like a warm... It, the piano is not only a musical instrument, and it's a percussive as well as a melodic instrument, but it's also a piece of furniture and a friend in the corner of the living room. And so anybody who's a musician, if they've been interested in music from when they're little, which they all have, somewhere where there's a piano, they kind of will pick up on that if somebody plays a piano. It's because it is the king of instruments, it's the composer's tool, it's the arranger's tool. So when they come in my room, much better than having a roaring fire is having a piano in there. And sometimes it'll be, well, we're going to say, well, we're going to talk to you, and it'd be great. So much better if you could sing a little illustration of something. Well, under you can understand so much more. When you say, who was somebody you really liked earlier, and what, would you, what song did you used to sing to your mum, and somebody sings that? You learn so much more about what they're about than if you start asking them about their sort of drug habits, all that sort of thing, you know. Um, it, it's, it's a great moment. And the, the fact that there's a piano in there made people relax and unwind. Um, I think the only one perhaps wasn't uh, relaxing was um, Judy Garland's daughter, who was... Uh, Liza Minnelli. Liza Minnelli, exactly, who came. And she's the only person, apart from Keith Richards, who chain-smoked in the building, which is a non-smoking building, and just told people to go... Obviously, well, he... this wasn't permitted by the BBC. No, uh, but, and was, and was <laughs> ignored... Everybody just couldn't care less. I mean, she was more rock and roll than anybody had ever been on the show. And we were doing a song, and I'm trying to remember what the song was. Can you remember what it was? I can't remember what the song was. It was one of the famous standards, wasn't it? Was it was a famous standard, but it, she'd had this arrangement with different chords. And um, I don't know, let's just say that it was, uh, 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 you know, uh, Are the stars out tonight? I don't care if it's cloudy or bright, because I only have eyes for you. Something like that. And we had the chords, you know, she had a sort of a chart which I could more or less sort of make out. So we got through it. And each time I got to one particular, we did it. And she said, that's lovely. Let's just play that again. And we get halfway through. And then she said, I got to this one chord. She said, no, not that chord isn't the right chord. I said, oh, is it this one? No, 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 no. I said, is it this one? No, 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 no. This one? No. Oh, it went on like this. So I played through it again. We get to that. No, no, no. Oh. So then it was, and we're about to go live again with this song. I'm thinking, oh, no, no, this is like, I'm getting really tense now. And she opens the door and says, does anybody know then what this chord is? And Laurie Holloway, who's a television, did the music for Parkinson, and he's walking past. And she, she said, Laurie, you might know the chord. Pulls him in, he looks at it, and he says, it's... No, that's not it! <laughs> he was sort of pushed out of the room, another cigarette on the floor. She said, try once again, try to... So I played it through, played the first chord, I played it the first time, and that's it. Why didn't you play that? Phew. Now, we then go live, and really, in, when you're playing live on the television, you want to get lost in the music, but I think I was more lost in a complete sea of nerves, because when I get to this chord, she's just going to explode. We got to the chord, we went past it, and we moved on, and I never heard anything about it, and afterwards she said that was one of the most enjoyable performances I've ever had. <laughs> Thank you. But that, that performance was... There's another one that must come close to topping that and was always enjoyable, which is when you played with Eartha Kitt. Eartha Kitt is the other person. And I should now, I'm going to, okay, I will explain two things about that. So Eartha Kitt is a great person to discuss because there are so many people we've had on the show, you can ask us about what we're in a moment, but Eartha Kitt, again, is an example. She was one of the people from the jazz age. 
like you know, she'd been um, she'd she'd sung with the Duke Ellington Orchestra uh, when they were at their peak. She'd been in the film Stormy Monday, um, uh, starring as as um, uh, W. C. Handy's wife. She's like she was like really a real person from the jazz age, and also a film star. There's nobody from the jazz age left now because the time just they can't you know people that were performing in the 30s just aren't here anymore. So it was a great honour to have her there. When we have big stars in the room. Uh, for instance, like Paul McCartney or Elton John, they're super, they have royal manners. They go around, they invite, they, they make a point of going to say hello to all of the younger bands and they love it and they're very generous with their time and, and sort of encouraging remarks. Eartha was similar, but she was really fantastic. Each Instead of her going there, everybody came over, all the, the rock and roll people, and they were so, oh, it's so great to meet you. And they were sort of allowed to kiss her ring, and it was great. <laughs> it was great. And, and she sat on the piano purring like this, and it was really, and she, it was, and she, and then she was doing yoga. I mean, unbelievable, just on the, throwing shapes. It was really so, so fantastic. And then, and then she sort of did her number, which I'll come to in a moment, and then went off. So somebody said, no, the, the thing is, uh, uh, Miss Kitty, we'd like you to stay at next to the piano because the artists stay in the circle in the room which Mark will tell you about in a moment but they stay in the circle so you need to be you might be in shot <sighs> so she comes around sits at this table next to the piano and as the camera comes around she's sitting like this <laughs> I said you know I said the camera might capture it doesn't it doesn't look so good she said but it's just too loud why do they have to play so loud? I said, I'm sorry, it's just what they, I can't just say, oh. Anyway, so she said, all right. And, I, and I, then I looked round, and, we, and she was back on the piano, literally sort of her ankles going, touching the top of her head, doing this incredible yoga pose. And she was great and did ain't misbehaving. But the thing I will just briefly go back to is one of the old people that I learnt piano from was this man... Uh, called Vic, who played in the Royal Standard in Greenwich. And as a teenager, I'd go in there and they'd have these sing-along songs. He'd do one that was, uh, um, you know, he'd play, the, he'd play the Great Fat Swallow songs. So it was from him that I learnt the... And so when Eartha Kitt came on the show and said, do you know Ain't Misbehaving in the dressing room, I said, yes, like this. And she said, yes, that's right. How do you know it? And I said, because Vic. She said, oh, yes, he was great. She never <laughs> knew Vic, but it was great to know that his spirit was there. And that's the point also. It makes you realise music goes back and it goes back and it goes back, you know, to it's all passed on um, as, uh, in a great way. Vic also, he sort of showed me stride piano. And in fact, I did in the opening theme tune from later, 
which has been, which has been the same theme forever. You can hear, it's Pino Palladino, the great bass player, playing a bass riff, it's Gilson on the drums, and I think there's some, horn, some of my horn players, very young, but the piano styling on it is this, which is actually a stride piano, which I got off of Vic, which is... So forth, thank you. But it was. But I realised only the other day that it was. That was what it was. It was going back. You know, you're taking stuff all the time. You pick, you learn stuff, and you take it along, and you move it along with you. But the piano, another example of the piano in the dressing room, because I had the piano in the dressing room. Sometimes, you know, to be honest, I'm a bit lazy. I don't really read the notes. I forget more. You know, I'm, if I go to the doctors, I sort of lose interest in what he's saying, and it's important I listen. You know, but I'm all. I sort of start, suddenly start looking at a fly buzzing and rambling. <laughs> anyway, in my dressing room, there would be various sort of things to look at, but I'd always just end up sort of just tinkling at the piano. One time in the BBC TV centre, I was playing a riff, like something like this, uh, I think it was a... Uh, 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 this riff and I was trying to it wasn't quite but it was a vague Leroy Carr piano riff that I thought I would and I'm playing this and then suddenly I hear this great big kick on the door what's that fucking noise I'm like what's that and I opened it and it was Joe Strummer <laughs> and he said I love that riff he said I've got some words for that riff he said it's called the return of the blues cowboy here you go and he literally <laughs> said there's words he said work on that and we'll see you later now that's the weirdest way I've ever written a song in my life <laughs> but absolutely true the final piano story I'll tell you because then I think Mark will say a couple of things before we take your questions is because it is the friend in the living room but on the hootenanny of course it's a very important part and again in the dressing room because people want to change what they do at the last minute sometimes you have just, just a quiet moment at the piano to figure it out but we had Lionel Richie on and I think well, so he's one of the, I think I'm trying to remember the song because it starts with just his vocal. There's no band or anything. It just starts off. Mm, da, 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 da. No, I can't remember what the tune is. All night long? Is it all night long? Is it starts with just is. the vocal? Yeah. And he said to me, and the, the, he said, the band sounds great. He said, no, the only thing is, because I'll have come out, you know, you'll come out with something else. He said, I, I start it on just my own, so I need the note. So can you give me the note? Just that, you know, the, mm, just, just quietly. When the band before finish and the cameras are panning around, just give me just a quiet, just so mm, just I'll know what the note is. Sure, yeah, no problem at all. This is in the rehearsal, like the day before. Come to the evening of the show, the show's going very well. I'm thinking, oh, this is so great. I, said, I thought my mum's going to see me with, now she's going to see me with Lionel Richie. Wow, this is great. <laughs> this is really great. Oh, it's the band of Lionel's there. Whoa, he's an intern. Oh, he's good. This is great. Here I am. And so, the, and then whoever the last band was, and it was a segue, which means it goes with no introduction, comes, that band finishes, applause, and it comes round, and we're about to start. And it comes round, and Lionel's at the end of the piano going like this to me. It's kind of round, he goes, <laughs> and I'm thinking, good old Lionel, right there. <laughs> yeah. 
completely forgotten what he told me. And I'm just beaming away and nodding, and he's going like that, and I'm going, yes, please. And he just, anyway, he just ignored me. He did the note, because I suppose he's been doing it forever, and it was perfect, of course, so he, without, without me. And afterwards, I hurled myself at his feet and apologised that he was very amused by the whole thing. But that's the piano for you. It was a friend in the corner of the living room, even in the hands of the sometimes forgetful and incompetent. <laughs> So one of the essences of later is that it's a circle, that all these musicians are gathered around a room together. Gregory Porter said that playing on the show was like singing round a fire pit. There's this kind of dynamo of energy that comes with all the musicians facing each other and looking in towards each other. But that also means that once we've built our circle for that week, it's kind of vital that the artists that we booked and sound checked actually come to the show. <laughs> and most famously, we'd managed to book Smokey Robinson to come and play on the show in 2009. I think he was doing the Electric Proms and another BBC show. And the guy who looked after him said, Smokey would love to come and be on your show. And he'd just done a cover of Nora Jones' beautiful song, Don't Know Why. And we were all very excited about this. Although the excitement, and the excitement slightly took a hit when Jules said, I know, I'll get the band together, and then discovered that his lovely guitarist, Mark Planigan, had an appointment, maybe the dentist or I something. Think it was something. He had something, he's home, some so emergency. We said, oh, we'll find another guitarist. Jules says, no, don't bother, I can do this. And what did you do? Well, the first person to ring was Eric Clapton, the, the noted Depp. Um, and he agreed, because he thought, well, I, lo I, I, I love that. But the thing you should understand about Eric is he's a very precise, not only is he one of the greatest guitar players of all time, but his precision about everything is very, uh, you know, he's fought a lot of battles against sort of, uh, drugs and everything, and so he has a, he's quite rigid and strict about things like timing. I once went to a rehearsal with him. I was one minute late, and he didn't talk to me for a day, literally one minute late. Um, uh, and so he's very all about, you know, and if things, if things aren't set out and don't go like things are supposed to go, he becomes quite anxious, you know, he's quite so... Anyway, as Mark said, so we're, we're, uh, Smokey was coming from somewhere else. So he, we learned the song, and we're sitting with the, my little rhythm section and Eric, and then... And then nothing. Then nothing. No sign of Smokey. Oh, is it a sound check? No, he hasn't turned. And Eric kept saying to me, when's he coming? So I said, oh, well, he'll be here in a minute, I expect. Don't, don't worry, it's all right, don't worry. Relax, it's going to be fun. So, um, and Eric didn't have anything to play. He'd bought his own sandwich, that's what I remember. He'd bought his own cheese and pickle sandwich. Yes. <laughs> Not wanting to get, you know, disturbed. And so he retired either to your dressing room to have his sandwich yes. while you kept saying, no, he will come. He will come, yeah, but also that's, that's how. And it does work, you know, that's well done, Eric, for remembering to bring your own sandwich because we didn't have any. Um, he did come to one session with us once and we got cheese and pickles sandwich specially for him and somebody else ate it. I can't tell you what that was like. <laughs> anyway. So we're waiting for Smokey and it's seven, then it's eight. And then the when we start taping the first show, we still have seen... They've run the song, Jules and his, you know, small, small rhythm section with Eric, and Eric's kind of looking at his watch, and I think at one point he said to you, I'm going to get my coat, didn't he? Yeah, he, he said, where is he? I said, I, he will be. He said, you keep saying that. He's not here. Where is, the show started. I'm sitting, the show started. We haven't even seen him. Are you sure? Are you just making this up? I said, no, no, no. He really, he really is. Just give us a chance. He said, oh, if he's, if he's not here, I'm going. I'm, going. I'm having this. So, and just as he started to go through the back of the door. They said, oh, ah, 
there's Smokey. And of course, when he arrives, everybody, hey, great to see you, great to see you. Any problem? No, also happy to see you, marvellous. And through that energy, you can see, you can look up the thing on YouTube um, of Smokey Robinson uh, doing... Um, don't know why. Don't know why. And there's an energy to it, which actually is really, really great. Because sometimes the tension like that makes things kind of even more sort of, you can't predict what's going to make things work really well, but that's one of them. I think we're getting towards the time when we'll have... We should. Two things I remember about that particular performance was that it actually ended up being happening at 20 to 10, 20 minutes before the live show. It's the penultimate song in the show. So his arrival was terrifying. Speaking as a producer, I'm outside in the horseshoe, pacing up and down, thinking we're going to have a hole in the show. So... His arrival was so beautiful. But also, Eric was playing opposite Basement Jacks, whose star guest that night was Yoko Ono doing her fantastic screaming thing that she does. And I, when I looked it up, Eric used to play with John Lennon in the Plastic Ono Band. And the last time, as far as I could work out, that they had played together, Yoko, John and Eric was at the Toronto Rock and Roll Festival in 1970. And here they were, reunited on your show, our show, four yards from each other to end the show, all those years later. Extremely stressful circumstances, Barry. Yeah. Yes. Not for Yoko, she seemed, to, yeah, she seemed well, to take it in her stride. She wasn't waiting for, for Smokey. The other thing I would just say about Yoko, which I discovered that night, which was, I because I was looked at, we were talking about her artwork, and we, she had a book of her artwork, and we looked at it, and these are little things you find out. And one artwork she had, and I thought this actually was great, and I realised that she is a great artist. Uh, and the artwork was this it was a big uh, chess set and she beautifully designed the chess pieces but the thing that was great about it is that they were all white there was no black set pieces and white but it was just all one colour the chess pieces and I thought now that is good <laughs> have a go with that <laughs> <laughs> amazing so maybe one last thing we thought we'd just show one tiny clip of later and then we'll take questions and there was a wonderful moment with Jules at the piano who's talking about the piano being the heart of the show the, the, the second time that Amy Winehouse came on in 2007. And um, you always got on really well with Amy. You just seemed to both musically because of the shared love of jazz and the great American songbook, etc. But also as a London girl, you know, she was your kind of girl, wasn't she? Yes, she was really great and had the... I think the thing you realise, or I've realised more and more, when you see... Uh, and work with people close up <clears throat> that it's some people have great voices and but you need to uh, possess a song and have a certain attitude and Amy had that whole attitude she couldn't care less what you, you whether you liked her music or didn't like her music so long as you knew she was just real and she was really real so you get people like Edith Piaf maybe Billie Holiday Bessie Smith they're really powerful people and it's and it's a bit like uh, if you take a painter like Rembrandt or Lucien Freud, it's partly about the paintings, but it's about them. And so I think that's the thing about Amy and, and the really great singers. It's, it is about the, the songs, but it's really about them. It's because it's the way, it's you, it's them that you're interested in and them that makes it. If somebody else sang it, even with a beautiful voice, it wouldn't have the same meaning. So she was really remarkable and unique. And also having the piano in the dressing room, that meant you could have great fun. She chose this song. I didn't really know it, which you can hear. Really, and she said, let's do it a bit up-tempo. So anyway, whatever. But so that's all right. The moment is the moment. So here it is. The moment's right. There's a little, little bit of chat. And you've got to remember, this is two 
2007. So Back to Black hasn't come out. And although Amy is now restyled with the Beehive, it's her second album, this is, well, the world doesn't really know Amy yet at this point. So here, here, here are Jules and Amy together. Yeah. Oh. When did you write that one? Um, I wrote that in February or March um, in New York with Mark Ronson and uh, we were just walking down the street and I sang the hook and he burst out laughing and he said, who's that? I said, what's that? I just made it up. And he was like, That's, that would be really cool. And I said, Zard, listen, let's go to the studio now. I can knock it out now. You went straight there and did it just like that? Yeah, literally. It's like your voice has become more powerful, your songwriting has become stronger. Do you feel all those things are happening? Um, I definitely, I'm, I'm very proud of this record and I feel that, you know, Unless I could have bettered myself than with the last album, then I might as well give up. Mm. And it's a different, it's a great sort of different vibrations. It's got a sort of a Motown groove. Yes. Did what's the first music that you listened to though? Um, a lot of jazz, really. A lot of Sarah Vaughan. There's loads of Sarah Vaughan songs. April in Paris. But I think one of my earliest memories is listening to uh, so my granddad play uh, tenderly. My pop Larry, oh, God rest his nice. soul, tenderly. And what did your granddad play an instrument, or he play it on a record? No, he'd play it. He'd play it on, you know, off a record. Well, yeah. Do you know how to sing that? Yes. Would you give that a go? Yeah. Should we give mm. Tenderly a go? <coughs> Hello, it's Vass here, recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. This May, the author of The Argonauts and other genre-defying, unclassifiable modern classics, Maggie Nelson, is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists and thinkers, including Prince, Bjork, Sarah Lucas, and Judith Butler. Like Love is available to pre-order now in hardback, ebook, and audio. Well, I think we should let's get a tempo. Hang on, hang on. Could you give us a bit of this? So, amazing, eh? Well done, Jules. <laughs> so, as well as me telling the story of the show, but I interviewed various artists uh, in between the chapters, and one of the artists who was on with Amy that night was Jack White, I think with his band, with Brendan Benson, the Raconteurs, and Jack didn't know who Amy was and hadn't met her before, and... Before the start of each show, all the artists on the show would gather around the piano uh, and then we'd take a photograph, a cast photograph. And um, Amy was a bit offy to Jack. He said, it was really odd. I went up to her, she seemed really interesting. I thought we'd like the same sort of music. She wouldn't really talk to me and I, I just thought maybe she just doesn't like me. So that was it. And they, two years later, Jack is playing some sort of festival where, and he's walking along with Believe it or not, and you know, in a night for name dropping, he's with Beyonce and Jay Z. 
according to Jack, which I'm sure is true. And uh, Amy comes up to him, she's with them, and says, Jack, I'm really sorry about it. I was really offy to you at later, but um, my boyfriend, who was very possessive, was over in the cor corner, and he said to me, if you eyeball that Jack White one more time, I'm leaving you. <laughs> that was Jack White and Amy. <laughs> so... So on that on that bombshell, it's time. <laughs> nice to, bit of gossip. Yes, we did. By the way, <laughs> Mark and I were sitting there because the show has been on for and the Hooch and he's been on for thirty years. We thought, well, how many prime ministers have there been? And we thought, well, it's, it's, it's another another couple well, tonight. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, the questions. There's a, um, a, 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 a if anybody has a question, put your hand up and somebody will come to you. So if you say your name and your question and where you've come from, we'll try and answer the best we can. Hello, my name's Ben from Camden. Nice we don't need to handle. clap. Um, it's interesting you showed Amy Winehouse, because arguably the main crossover artist that you kind of championed and supported was Adele. Can you tell us a little bit about Adele? Because she was very young when you had her first on your show. And who's the better songwriter, do you think? And can you bang one of them out on the piano as well? <laughs> yes. Thank you. Um, I, can, I can bang on and on the piano, so that's all right. Um, I think that I wouldn't want to make value judgments, I think, uh, about uh, who was a better songwriter. Um, um, but the, I think that Adele, um, when she came on, I mean, she had such an amazing voice. And also, she, like Amy... Uh, and a lot of people who are great, they're kind of rooted in, a, in like blues music that comes a long time before them. And I think it's really important to remember that because blues now is actually at a, is, is like a lot of people have forgotten it, but it is, that's, all, that's where the, there's a lot of the roots come from that in both the people we're, we're, we're talking about here. Um, when Adele first came on, she came and said to me, um, uh, I forget which was she was on, but she said, oh, uh, I'd like you to meet my mum. She said, and actually my mum took me to see you with Ruby Turner at the Fairfield Halls when I was 12. And, um, and she sent a note backstage saying, could my daughter get up with you? And um, we never heard anything back. I said, never heard anything back. That's outrageous. I know that was my tour manager. Well, sack him. He'll never work again. <laughs> I'm so sorry. She said, anyway, would you meet my mum? So I said, yes, of course I would. So I... Um, uh, sort of walked, walked over to the corner of the room. I don't know why. I mean, sort of stupid of me, really. But I was sort of expecting to meet this sort of charming, sort of white-haired, white, white -haired, wizened, ancient mum. But of course, she was much younger than me. Very glamorous. <laughs> um, so you must never have preconceptions. Um, and but like Amy, she's like a very London-like kind of rooted person, which is interesting. A London person who's come out of a lot of uh, African American music, blues and jazz, and all that. And has had a world effect. I think the difference between them is that Adele has not let it, you know, some people, it does kill them. As you see, it's a dangerous thing, being really talented and writing songs. Jerry Lee Lewis said about Hank Williams, that's what killed him, writing all those songs. So, uh, yeah, you have to be careful. So I think, um, have you any other things to share about Adele? I think the most extraordinary thing about Adele, particularly the first time, is she, she was completely unknown. She'd just put out four demo songs. And she came on and played Daydreamer, and Alison and I, the, my co-producer at the time, Alison now runs the show, loved Adele, and we'd always look, when we had a brand new artist that no one had heard of, we'd look for a really big bill to put them on, you know, like Robin Hood. So, so Paul McCartney and Björk were on that show, and poor Adele 
who we'd never seen play live. And usually we went out and saw the artists that featured on the show, but we hadn't seen Adele. We could tell what a great singer she was from the demo. We put her in the middle of the floor and she was just on a stool with a guitar. And she plays the song and sings it, as you say, her vocal range and the song was so beautiful. And there's a fantastic look when she finishes the song that she's proud and she's just so glad to have got through it because it must have been so intimidating even though she announced herself didn't she straight away as yeah. clearly a really talented artist and the final answer to your uh, question is i did sit at the piano with her and uh, this was what i went because she was then on a hootenanny and she said what we're going to do and she done i would we done make you feel my love with her just me and her at the piano which then goes on to have all these you, you know when the show goes out you get a million people watching if you're lucky and afterwards millions sometimes you know see these things on youtube but i was in the dressing room with adele you can hear me speaking now i'm just going to speak with my microphones there and she said what are we going to do and i said do you like willie dixon who was the great blues writer and she said what one and i tell you i started playing a bit of uh time on the whole show is when a singer starts singing really in the dressing room and you think this is going to be fantastic and so we then go out and do it with a big band and it is just great because if it works with the piano and it works with the voice the human voice then it's going to work with the big band but it was great literally i started playing and as soon as she sang it for whoa she had the same thing that amy had she had the, she could sing anything you know she would sing the phone book and it sounded fantastic what's the next question Hi, Jules and Mark. Um, congratulations on so many years of the show and, and the book, of course. Now, obviously, over the decades, there's been tons of incredible performances. But just as that clip there, Amy Winehouse, shows been some fantastic interviews as well. Jules, what do you think is the, the key to doing uh, a great interview? And uh, give us an example of one that's just gone horrendously. Well, I spoke quite a few. I mean... I read a book, because I thought I would learn some interview techniques. There was a man called Commander Burt, who was the head of the special branch in the 1940s. And he got confessions out of a lot of Nazi war criminals. And in his book, he said, a lot of people have asked me, what's my key to uh, interrogating the, um, the Lord Horhob confessed on the plane to me, and that sent him to the gallows. A lot of people said, what's, your, what's the trick to your, to your, interview, te your in interview technique? He said, and quite simply, Try not to say too much. He may do show a simple act of kindness to the person. He says maybe say, "Oh, that's a nice tie you've got," and offer them a cigarette. Don't do any more. And often they're so desperate to unbridle themselves of whatever it is they've got, they just start talking away. That was his technique. No bashing people over the head with wet towels or lights in the eyes. Just have a cigarette. Nice tie. So I tried to learn from that, but I haven't always. Um, but I think the thing is, we don't, I think people relax with me. I don't think I'm, I'm not 
I don't boast to be a great interviewer, but I like to have chats with people. And the older I've got, I've realised people are... Re- you know, if you talk about the same thing, which is music, uh, and I think often musicians and artists, particularly the ones who are iconic and famous, who are in, who are in like, mainstream media, you know, you see in newspapers and stuff, what they talk... They never really talk about the music. They talk about other things. You know, if it's Noel and Gallico, they talk about the, the row between the brothers. They never talk about the music. It's always about something else. But with me... It probably will always be about music, which sometimes lead on to something else. The interview that was great, which, <laughs> but it was never, and I thought it was one of the best things, it was so, so great that somebody said, but then it got edited out because there wasn't time, was this. And I said to Abdullah Ibrahim, and I'm just going to play a bit of Abdullah Ibrahim so you'll remember who he is, which is... Mannenberg, which is a mountain, which became the theme of a lot of people, the theme of the apartheid movement. But he um, played on the show, and he was playing quite an abstract thing. And I said, "What's to him? What's the first music that you ever heard?" Which is quite a good way, you know, because it's a different thing for everybody. I got you going. And he paused, and he said, "The first music I ever heard was probably she said, my mother. Uh, I was in the womb." And it was the silences in between her heartbeats. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Wait, no? I mean, that's the best answer anybody's ever given. <laughs> Edited that out. <laughs> I thought it was good. Next question, please. Uh, this question is, I'm Denise, but it's not my question. I had lunch with somebody at lunchtime today, and he said, can you ask Jules if he would play with Squeeze, or is he still in touch with the... With the group. Yes, I can answer that very simply. That is, I'm still in touch with some of the, well, Gilson, who plays the drums and has been on every Nanny that you can ever have seen, and has been the pulse of New Year's Eve, of course, was in Squeeze with me. I do also, uh, Chris Difford, who was in Squeeze, is, is on doing a couple of shows with us when I'm on tour in the winter. I saw Glenn Tilbrook in Amsterdam recently, and he got up with us in a show there. So we're all still friendly and, and play with one another. I, I love them, and I love the music we did. I don't think I'd probably play with them again now, because things, my own big band takes up all of the time I've, I've got really much as I love them all so that's the answer to that perhaps this, this, this gentleman here or uh, somebody with the hand up here yeah. Hi Jules it's David from Belsers Park um, you mentioned uh, the magic of the show for me was always the circle and who was in it every week and some weeks were incredible and I'm just wondering if, if, we're gonna, if we're reminded about all those in the book and the combination of artists that you, that you had. I can't particularly say off the top of my head, but some shows were just unbelievably good because of that combination of artists. Well, thank you very much for saying that. I, and, I, uh, and in fact, I'm completely 
like you, apart from, I don't live in Belsize Park, but I can remember there being lots of fantastic circles, but can't quite remember who's in them. <laughs> but it is, I think that's the important thing of the show, the fact that you've got somebody from, who's like a mainstream big pop artist, or you've got maybe a country artist, or you've got a legend. I mean, Mark might be able to just remind us of, could you remind us of one show which had a good, oh, one God. example of a, of a... Well, in the book... Of a, of a, <laughs> in the book, we used to, as I say, do pictures beforehand... So, well, just at random, Arcade Fire, Foo Fighters, Black Eyed Peas, Hard Fire, Maritza, another one, Was Not Was, The Charlatans, Eartha Kitt, Brandy Carlisle, who recently sang with Joni Mitchell at the Newport Folk Festival, introducing Licky Lee, and really famously, the Yamamoto drummers of Japan, who had huge drums. And uh, there's a wonderful picture of Jules playing one of these drums somewhere in this book. But more, more attention-seeking. More attention. But a, the, a, rare, a rare straight moment straying from the pianos. But I think that's right. It was the, and it's the mix of all the different things, of having old artists, young artists, new artists, people from different genres, and the fact that they all... And I think this important thing is that they all have as much regard for the other... For the art, for the music of the other artists on the show, who would be in a completely, who are in a different genre and world, but would have the same regard and respect for one another. Which, and curiously enough, the room, because it's up now, it's an established idea. The room and that the people in it make that even stronger. You know, so everybody's like, not, I wouldn't say well behaved. They're not always that, but they're always they they realise they want to be a, listening to the other people in the room. So I think that's a good thing. Where's the next question? There's a, a gentleman here with the. Uh, or maybe you've got somebody there. Hi, I'm Aaron from Bermondsey. Um, my question for you is: In the last year or two, who have you seen who's a new artist who you've thought is? Um, who you thought would be someone has now become someone and they came to you when they were first starting out? Well, uh, I mean, it's a bit... Uh, I think... And then we, you know, people come on the show and... I mean, for instance, we have just did a special with the Arctic Monkeys. And I like them. I think they're really amazingly talented. I used to see them in Sheffield. and, and But I haven't taken in that in the last few years they, they're sort of a global uh, mega success. They fill out huge stadiums and have had so many, it's a, so, so, sold so many records and downloads and all that, that it's sort of, that, that it is, it, they're a huge phenomena. And I hadn't realised that, I, you know. Because often somebody's success isn't really measured in how many records they sell, but what the greatness of their work is and how if it continues. It's great, it's wonderful if it, if it does sell loads as, as well. But so they'd be a recent one. If you ask me about somebody new, in fact, I'm going to dash from here in about 10 minutes and I'm going to go to the Jazz FM Awards where I'm going to play with a fellow called Kingfish who is about 20 years old and about 20 stone and he's from Clarksdale, Mississippi and he's like an amazing uh, young guitar player. So he would be, he hasn't, he hasn't been on anything yet, but I think he'll be big. So there's more, but big in the, in the, in the guitar world. We've got another, thank you, but here's another question. There's a gentleman, there's two people just, just over there. Hi, I'm Guy from uh, Chiswick. Uh, you, thank you both for all the years of enjoyment. You talked very eloquently earlier about the juxtaposition of young, like emergent or esoteric artists against some of the more established stars. And I just want to know, is there an anecdote that where you saw those two people coming together in a touching way behind the scenes or backstage that you most remember? 
Um, yes, I think I would have a, I mean, one, there's a photograph which Mark has selected in the book, which is great, which has Little Roy and Tony Bennett. And they really are from completely different worlds, but absolutely bathing in each other's company, which is great, you know, because you realise it's a grounding thing in music. You think people are from a different sort of um, world, but they're actually all from the same. They're doing the same thing. They're playing the same thing. Um, we did our 30th show about... We recorded it about two weeks ago, whatever it was. And on that... Um, what happened on that? There was somebody... Uh, Michael Kiwanuka had a little electric piano, and the... And it was just him and the piano in the, in the Hammersmith Apollo packed out, and the piano didn't work, and it kept not working. And they, oh, no, take that again. No, and the piano wasn't working. And it was all getting a bit awkward. And Richard Hawley was in the wings. He doesn't know Michael Kiwanuka, but Richard Hawley somehow thought that Michael Kiwanuka had some. Uh, psychological problem why he couldn't continue he was having a panic attack <laughs> and he kept saying in his lovely uh, Sheffield voice I've got oh, Paul I've no, I know what to do I know to talk him through this I can save him I can talk. and he's trying to get on stage I said no he's all, no 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 look I can help him I can help him I really can let me through no it's not anyway we, we stopped it's a piano the piano doesn't work oh and then he's rather disappointed when it was that, <laughs> that but I think all of the artists really are I think the underlying point is they're rooting for one another they want one another to succeed, they want the best. Uh, you know, they want their music to communicate. Everybody wants that, I think. I think. I think the new artists love being on with the older artists, the legends that they've watched all their lives, and the legends love being on with new people because it makes them feel current and uh, of a part with, with the music scene today. And that I think that's always been a really rich juxtaposition. And going way back in time to the nineties, I remember you know, they would become a huge band. But the very first time Travis were on in about the mid-90s, they'd just released one single, All I Need to Do Is Rock, and they were very fresh-faced and new. And they were on a show, Lionel Richie had come on the show and played Easy at the piano. I don't want you to think that Lionel Richie was on every week, but he was <laughs> on a few times. And I, I just remember, and Sting was on this show, and there were Travis, completely wet behind the ears, just down from Scotland. And Fran would talk about this for years to come how could you do this to us and and also how terrifying that he remembered it the moment that he'd seen all already seen all his life of Jules introducing an act with that wonderful sweeping generous gesture and he suddenly said oh my god he's gesturing at us <laughs> we have so I think I think there was always been inspiration between the classic artists you might say and brand new ones and they They've always inspired each other, haven't they? I think so, yeah. People definitely... There's definitely an energy in the room. There's no question about that. I think we've got time for a couple more questions. So who would... There's a, what, where's a gentleman at the back. There's a person here. Where I don't know where you're... There's somebody... Um, hi, I'm Neil, also from um, Bell's House Park. Hi, David. Um, <laughs> Have you met? Did you no. come by bus? <laughs> Together. Uh, I've, I've got two questions. I think I, I might know the answer to both of them. But first question is, um, it, 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 um, we kind of take it for granted that the um, musicians that you invite will come to the show. Um, I mean, they're, they're some of the biggest stars in the world. And um, it, what is it about the show that brings people you know, to it? Um, and the second question is, um, 
Um, have you got any spare tickets? <laughs> what, was, what was the second question? What was the second question? Have you got any spare tickets? Oh, well, the series is just finished. Um, we are going to, because we've just done the 60th birthday. I'll ask the second, second question first. We have just done the 30th birthday. We're planning a 100th birthday. Um, and I'm selling the tickets now. They're £500 each. And if I'm not there, I'll give you your money back. Um, but I think the reason people want to come on the show is that, first, there's not another show. It's a global show. It's sold around the world. We should be proud that it's made here and it's sold around the world. It's a great thing, you know, because no, no other countries have a show like it um, because it's made on a public broadcaster. That's really the reason of it and, and the reason it stayed on as well. And so it's sold around the world. And people want, to, you know, they will, they will, and people who are watching the show, like a lot of you, they're watching it because they love music. The demographic shows that it's unlike other programmes which reach a certain audience. The audience, as you've seen by all of you, is incredibly sort of um, uh, mixed. You know, it's, it's old people, young people, rich people, poor people. I'm not saying you're poor. I'm just <laughs> saying you both live in Bell Size Park, whatever. Anyway, the point is that it's a huge mixed demographic of people watch it, but they're all interested in music. So if you come on the show and play your songs, you're, you're hitting your audience, a potential audience. And it also, for the younger artists, when they first come on, it's like, you know, it's, it was, um, who did he was saying? Once he came on, he realised, that's it, I've sort of, it's like I've... Well, Ed Sheeran. Ed Sheeran said, when he, once, once he, he really wanted, once he was on the show, he thought, this is it. This is what I've, this is what I've been wanting to do since I was busking. You know, it's like a, it's like a little step in their in people's minds, which is great. I think it's good. So people, it's a feel, people, people want to do it if they haven't done it, and hopefully they've had a nice time, so they'll come back. Hello, Jules and uh, Mark, and thanks for coming up with such a, a brilliant concept that's lasted for so long. Um, but my question to you is that, um, oh, and, and my, my name is Ian, and actually we don't come from London, we've come down from the Peak District, and, and when we've finished with you, then we're going to drive back up there again. Oh, thank you. Has anybody <laughs> but, come from further than the Peak District? <laughs> um, the question to you is that in the 30 years, and this is to both of you, what would be the two most emotional moments that you've experienced within the show? Uh, because there must be many. I think for me, it would be... Uh, um, for me, it would be when B.B. King came on the show and when he came on the Hootenanny and he walked into the room and this had never happened before for any other artist, you know, who had been mega artists and everything, but it never happened. The band, or just spontaneously without being asked all stood up and applauded and so did all the camera crew and uh, everybody in the room that sort of thing happens in america all the time it never happens on our show they're miserable but they're on, for him they just loved him so much and I, th I was i was really sort of touched by that and i think he was too and i think for me and i i guess you know because it's 30 we're going back in time but on our second series in 1993 leonard cohen came on and that felt like i'd loved leonard cohen all my life i know that jules had and the show was still starting out, and although we had the circle around the room, in a way, the artists weren't paying as much attention to each other. And at the end of the show, after he gave a fantastic chat, and you can find on YouTube with Jules, he sang the song Dance Me to the End of Love. And the other artists on the show kind of tuned into this, and Leonard just kept singing the song. You know, he hadn't been playing live for that long. He had a long gap in his career. And he sang this beautiful song. And gradually, more and more people in the room and all the artists were standing at their microphones kind of singing along to this thing. And I think it went on for about 10 minutes. 
and it felt like a complete community. And it also showed us that what a great engine later could be as if, if we helped and engaged all the artists in really tuning in with each other. So for me, Leonard Cohen showed a way forward for the show and it's grown with that, that they very much now always pay attention and that they're engaging with each other across the floor. And I think Dance Me to the End of Love and, and Leonard began that. So for me, that's a kind of sacred moment. So thank you very much, everybody. Thank you for your erudite questions, and thank you for joining us. And thank you for watching. Mark Thank you. This episode of the podcast starred Jules Holland and Mark Cooper. It was produced by Esme Bright and Nicole Wong, and our editor is John Doughty. We'll be back in January. Until then, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Have a great Christmas and New Year, and thanks for listening. <laughs>